Welcome back. I'm Max Bergman, director of the Stewart Center in Europe-Russia Eurasia program at CSIS. And I'm Maria Snigovaya, senior fellow for Russia and Eurasia. And you're listening to Russian Roulette, a podcast discussing all things Russia and Eurasia from the Center for Strategic and International Studies. everyone. I'm Maria Snigovaya and welcome back to the Russian Roulette. In today's episode, Max and I will address and try to explain the ongoing uncertainty surrounding U.S. funding to Ukraine going forward. I think everybody understands how important it is uh, during Russia's war in Ukraine to continue to support Ukraine. But as you probably know, uh, this Saturday, Congress passed a short-term funding bill to avoid a government shutdown that did not include aid for Ukraine. Uh, while the bill lasts through November 17th, uh, which means that Congress has more than a month to decide what security assistance to Ukraine will look like going forward, President Biden has already urged congressional Republicans uh, this Sunday to back a deal that would provide more aid to Kiev. According to Biden, U.S. support for Ukraine cannot be interrupted under any circumstances. While U.S. lawmakers are deliberating, debating and holding closed-door discussions, Max and I will try to confront the situation at hand, outlining possible scenarios and courses of action for future U.S. assistance to Ukraine. And without further ado, Max, let's get to it. Let's get to it. Max, uh, obviously you've been following this topic very closely. Could you please tell us what exactly happened at Congress this Saturday and why this could be problematic for Kiev? Well, essentially what happened this Saturday was actually a real surprise, I think, to to everyone, I think, especially to congressional Democrats and, and I think anyone on Capitol Hill. The expectation going into the weekend was that government would shut down, that there would be a shutdown for probably a period of a few weeks, maybe a month. And then the hope was House Republicans would sort of get their act together, would pass something, and that in the negotiations with not only with the House Republicans, but also with the Senate, that they would also include Ukraine funding. But one of the things that occurred was that essentially Kevin McCarthy, by offering what is called a continuing resolution, a CR to fund the government for another 45 days, basically threw it back at the, at the Senate, at Democrats, at Senate Republicans, and didn't include uh, money for Ukraine. So the Ukraine Supplemental Appropriations Bill. Now, this is a separate piece of legislation that the president, President Biden, had submitted to Congress in August for about $24 billion uh, to support Ukraine, both its, its military and its economy. Now, $24 billion is a lot of money, obviously, but it's just a small portion of what we've been providing Ukraine over the past year. And the idea was that this would be easy for Congress to pass, and then the administration would go back and put another supplemental request probably in February, March. Now, there were some people questioning whether this was the right strategy. I think I was among them and saying, I think you're going to have maybe one bite at the apple here. But here was this supplemental request. Here was the continuing resolution. And what happened is by passing the, the continuing resolution, McCarthy and House Republicans successfully divorced the two issues. It was did seem the case that Mitch McConnell in the Senate, the Senate Minority Leader, was going to be very adamant about demanding Ukraine funding, but seemed to be, according to press reports, sort of overruled by his caucus. And Democrats weren't going to shut down the government over Ukraine. So now we're in a situation where there's 45 days of government funding, but there's no government funding for Ukraine. The Ukraine funding at this very moment has effectively run out. Now there's some residual money that is still there to be spent. And this, is, I think, is very important, gives a bit of a timeline. Now, this is going to get 
pretty in, in the weeds here. So where we are now is Kevin McCarthy has just been deposed as speaker. They as just, we are recording this podcast. As, as we are recording this podcast. The question is, who will be Speaker of the House is a big question. And so that raises questions of how the government will be funded after the 45 days run, runs out and what will happen for Ukraine funding going forward. So ton of uncertainty right now. Just to clarify, uh, the fact that Kevin McCarthy was ousted as a speaker, is that a good or bad news in terms of aid uh, for Ukraine? I think it's probably generally not great news. If you're just looking at this purely from a Kiev Ukrainian security assistance perspective, it's pretty clear to me that McCarthy wanted to pass Ukraine assistance. He would. The problem Kevin McCarthy's had is that he has had one of the narrowest majorities at any of any speaker in history, and he has this rambunctious far right that has threatened to topple him and now has toppled him, and that has strongly opposed Ukraine funding. And there was some talk of Democrats coming to McCarthy's aid to sort of bail him out, right? So if Democrats didn't show up in the House of Representatives, then what the votes that McCarthy would need to get a majority to remain speaker would be far less than the, the 218, and that he could remain speaker with just Democrats not showing up. And by having the vast majority of Republicans, he, would, he could remain speaker. And maybe there was a deal to be had where he would agree to do Ukraine assistance, fund the government, if Democrats simply didn't show up. Democrats didn't do that. Democrats showed up. They said, you made your bed. The Republican Party's in disarray. And they wanted the world to see, and basically the American public to see it in disarray. So what happens now, I think, is a big question. No one has raised their hand to say that they want to be speaker to replace them. So we are in a period of uncertainty. I think this uncertainty may last until this podcast comes out on Thursday and may last for a while. But then that creates all this uncertainty about how the government will be funded and how Ukraine will be supported. Which takes me to the next question. What are the potential scenarios that can unfold on November 17th uh, once the funding expires, assuming the worst possible scenario, I guess? So, so look, I think it's still, it's, it's still uncertain. It's not a done deal that Ukraine funding is doomed. I think there's a good chance that Ukraine funding happens in part because there is such strong majority support for it. And this is, I think, something, a point worth uh, emphasizing. There have been some that have said, oh, no, the American public is sort of shifting away from backing Ukraine. And you can point to some of the poll numbers to say, oh, well, support for Ukraine uh, security assistance has dropped. Well, it's still above 50 percent. And for the United States public to support anything involving foreign aid above 50 percent is rather remarkable, especially when a large segment of one of the parties is sort of actively campaigning against it. And I think we also really haven't had the president of the United States and Democrats really actively pushing for Ukraine assistance. And you might be asking, well, why was that? I think in part, they were trying to play a soft political game where Biden wasn't trying to politicize Ukraine aid. He wasn't trying to say, you know, you're either with the MAGA Republicans and Putin or you're with democracy and freedom. He was not trying to jam McCarthy. But now that McCarthy hasn't delivered what Biden said was, you know, his word, because McCarthy committed, I think, to Zelensky, to others that he would provide aid, that now this becomes a bit more of a political uh, fight. So I could see public opinion shifting, probably strengthening amongst Democrats, maybe weakening a little bit among Republicans. But that being said, look, if you look at the House Republicans, that I think it was about 130 of House Republicans signed up to supporting Ukraine aid. I think it gets to around at least two thirds, maybe 80 percent of House Republicans would vote for Ukraine assistance, perhaps as close to 90% of the Senate, we are talking about 80% of the House, 90% of the Senate supporting Ukraine aid. 
the issue is that speakers of the House, so if we're going to have a new Republican speaker, don't really want to bring legislation to the floor that doesn't have a unanimous support from their party. And any Ukraine assistance in the House would have to be passed with Democratic support. And it so divides the Republican Party. And so that is what is causing this to be a major political headache for, for Kevin McCarthy and, and why it's not yet happened. Uh, this is very helpful. Uh, thank you, Max. But uh, since you already are covering the issue of the GOP internal splits and divides, could you please uh, explain to our audiences why has it become so difficult, increasingly more difficult, winning approval for Ukraine assistance in Congress? And especially, why is Republican resistance to this aid is increasing? So if you look at the, the supplemental packages that have passed, so there were four in 2022. So, and that was when Nancy Pelosi was Speaker of the House and Democrats had unanimous control. And in fact, before she left as Speaker, there was a huge supplemental bill that was passed right before she went out the door to ensure that there would be funding for as long as possible. Now, I think part of the issue is that the Republican Party has become ideologically split when it comes to foreign policy, where you have a strong anti-establishment bent now amongst many uh, in the Republican Party. And you have to just look at the Trump factor. Right. Donald Trump is the leading candidate to be reelected. We don't have to revisit his his entire history of uh, his interactions with Russia, his, you know, if you just think back to the Helsinki conference that he had with Vladimir Putin. But that has meant that the Republican Party that was traditionally the hawks on Russia, and you still see that where the Biden administration is getting, I think, rightfully critiqued by many sort of former Republicans at the very least, or or conservatives saying that you're not doing enough, you're not spending enough, you're not, you're being self-deterred. A very legitimate conservative critique. So you have that aspect of the Republican Party is still very alive in Congress, but Trump has sort of moved the party in a different direction, you know, more aligned with autocratic governments and people like Tucker Carlson sort of actively advocating against Ukraine security assistance. So the base of the party has in some ways shifted and that creates a more fractious environment and that makes it more difficult for for trying to pass legislation. I would add that I think that is also reflected in the GOP primaries that are currently ongoing when uh, even despite the fact that Trump is actually absent from the debate, we have another candidate, Vivek Ramaswamy, who largely voices very similar arguments and he is uh, gaining some traction based on those arguments. So that unfortunately suggests that the issue goes beyond just Trump alone. Yeah, no, Trump ran against the establishment, the foreign policy establishment in 2016. That was a big part of you know anti-Iraq and that neo-isolationism, I think, extends and is very prominent now in a, in a real vibrant thread in the Republican Party. So on that particular note, it's quite frustrating that we're facing these issues a little more than a week after the Congress met with Zelensky uh, this September. And Zelensky, of course, uh, once again uh, flagged that the funding uh, for Ukraine was absolutely crucial to win the war. We all understand that. Yet, uh, despite all this effort, all the lobbying effort, uh, we still see this intra and inter-party disagreements. So you mentioned we may be witnessing this near-isolationist moment moment. Is that moment unique to just one party? Or do you think that encompasses broader trends in the U.S. foreign policy? I don't see it as a broader trend. I mean, like if you look at the, the Democrats, for instance, Bernie Sanders put out a statement saying that he wanted to fund Ukraine. So here is a member, probably one of the far left members uh, of Democrats in the Senate advocating uh, Ukraine security assistance. And I think if, if 
if you were going to hold a vote in the House, maybe there'd be one or two or a handful of Democrats that wouldn't vote for it, but the lion's share of the party would. I think the larger question is just whether the current political dysfunction in the House prevents Ukraine aid. And if that happens, we are in, I think we need to be very clear about this, a very difficult environment. It's a potential disaster for Ukraine if there is no money. And I think we need to understand that, that this is not something that is just like, well, there's some easy workaround that the administration can do. We can maybe talk about some of the workarounds that could exist, but this would really, I think, potentially swing the tide of the war in Russia's direction. Well, that's, uh, that's indeed uh, very, is very concerning. So imagine uh, the worst possible scenario, the money is run, has run out. What can we do then in the United States to continuously support Ukraine? Yeah, so this might be a kind of a wonky answer, but so maybe it's good to level set about where we are right now with Ukraine funding. So the money is done, right? The fiscal year is over. And I think it's important to understand there are sort of two general ways the U.S. government was providing support to Ukraine in terms of presidential authorities, authorities that the U.S. government has. Number one was something called presidential drawdown authority. Now, this is an authority that enables the president of the United States to basically take equipment from the U.S. military. So open up the warehouses and just take equipment and send it to a foreign partner. Normally, every year that is capped at $100 million per year, right? So a very limited amount. And when I was at the State Department, we would really struggle about when to use that money uh, to to pull helmets out to give to maybe Ukrainians back in, in 2014 or body armor, things like that, or small arms, you know, not very much money. Now, what happened is when the war started, Congress recognized that this was an urgent crisis, that we were going to have to get equipment to Ukraine really fast. And they upped that from $100 million to $14.5 billion. So the president over this last year has been able to take $14.5 billion worth out of U.S. stocks and send that to Ukraine. Now, what happened was earlier this year, you may have seen some of the reporting of, you know, accounting error at the Pentagon. They suddenly find five to six billion more uh, for Ukraine. And everyone must have been like, accounting error? How could there be an accounting error? Quite well, a big error. Yeah, but, but it's actually very easy to see how this could happen because how much is a Humvee worth? Well, you bought the Humvee 30 years ago for X amount. Well, 30 years later, like it's a used Humvee, U.S. military is never not going to use it. How much is that worth? Well, there's no like used Humvee market, right? So what is the value placed on this? So part of what the U.S. did is it went back and looked at it and said, well, we're overvaluing a lot of the really old stuff. Maybe there's mortars that are literally about to expire, maybe have ex expired, and we're still going to provide those. So how much are those worth? cents on the dollar? There was some reaccounting, but what that has done and why that is so important is that is the lifeline for Ukraine right now, because now there's about five to six billion that the U.S. government can spend, it can provide to Ukraine. So that gives, and we've been spending about 2.5 billion in drawdown per month. So that's another two and a half months. So maybe gets us to the end of the calendar year. And then after that drawdown, that 14.5 billion has now, as of October 1st, dropped back down to a hundred million dollars. So that's gone, right? There's basically no ability now for Biden, once that money is is gone, to pull from U.S. stocks, unless Congress intervenes or, or passes legislation that can increase that. So you have now a runway of about five to six billion left. Now, the other thing the U.S. can do is reallocate funding. So this is the second aspect where the U.S. has been through its security assistance accounts. So there's something called the Ukraine Security Assistance Initiative at the Pentagon. 
The State Department has the foreign military financing account. These are traditional security assistance. This is what we give money to Israel, to Egypt. But what's important about this is that you have to buy it. This is not taking from the U.S. military. This is going to U.S. companies and saying, we want to buy 155 millimeter mortar rounds from you to give to Ukraine. And the companies say, yes, great. We can deliver that in like a year, six months, 10 months, two years, whatever the timing may be. But it's not instant. It's not that they have that equipment or almost it's very unlikely that they they have those systems. So the U.S. can move money around. You can find a lot of billions in the Pentagon, you know, under the couch cushions and you can reallocate funding. The challenge there is that, A, you have to then put it under contract and that can take time. The other issue is there's a lot more bureaucratic resistance. Right now, the money is all additive. But as soon as you start taking from one account to another account, well, guess what? There's winners and losers there. So are you going to take money from Egypt? Okay, well, then that's going to create a diplomatic issue with Egypt. Or are you going to take, you're going to build less F-35s? Well, then you're going to have an issue with Pentagon procurement and those congressional representatives where F-35 is built will be up in arms. The bureaucratic resistance of reallocating funding is very difficult. And so that also leads to the time lag. So we have a real challenge where, you know, by if there's no funding for Ukraine passed by, you know, November when the 45-day continuing resolution is done, we're basically going to be out of money. And we're going to have to, you know, it's going to be very ad hoc over what Ukraine is going to get. And that is no way to fight a war. This is a very gloomy scenario and certainly very concerning. You know, one can't help but think about how much more efficient autocracies are in that regard, right? Not in the long term, but certainly in the short term when Putin can just relocate, I don't know, 10,000 old 1950s era tanks uh, and to send them to combat. Yeah, no, and I think, look, I think a lot of people look at, the security system say, well, you know, can't the president just do something, right? Why can't the president just do X? Fact is, we're a nation of laws where Congress has passed this money. They have passed it under restrictions with certain laws. There are real limitations on what the president can do. And for good reason, right? You don't want to have a president that could, let's say, just say, well, I'm going to give away all our F-35s to another country. So there's actual legal limitations on what can be done. and that is usually good. Democracies, you know, are rule of law-based governments. But now we are facing the limitations of presidential authority. Now, I think there's some ways they could get creative. There's something called the Excess Defense Articles Authority. I pointed to an article in War on the Rocks, where you basically, the military could just declare a bunch of its equipment uh, old and excess and not needed and give some of that equipment away. There is some dollar caps on that. So there's limitations to all of these uh, methods. but. It's going to be difficult without Congress. In the situation when Ukraine is already uh, getting a lot of promised uh, arms supplies later, right, than originally ho- hoped with certain delays, well, maybe there's Europe to the rescue. The conventional wisdom says that uh, the United States has the, w- the weapons and the EU maybe offers some funding, but maybe there's something to say about the European defense industrial complex, which uh, in the forthcoming months or years will be able to support Ukraine's war effort against Russia as long as uh, while uh, the Washington is Washington is deliberating on the future of U.S. aid. I think there's real hope here. The Europeans have definitely, I think, in some ways stepped up in ways that aren't quite appreciated. You know, we tend to focus on the annoying Germans being resistant to provide one thing and or to provide tanks and then now to provide missiles. And I totally agree with man, they're being annoying. On the other hand, once the Germans have provided agreed to provide something, 
they are all in and actually have been doing a tremendous job in emptying their stocks to really support Ukraine. And the same is true with the Eastern Europeans have given away all their old Soviet equipment, the Danes, the Norwegian, everyone has sort of is stepping up in Europe. The problem is that the U.S. military has been, you know, we've invested in our military. We open our warehouses, there is stuff there. Now, we have taken a lot out. We've given a lot to Ukraine. There's starting to be some concerns about readiness and all these other issues. But we still have big warehouses full. Europeans have opened up their warehouses. They've had to look, you know, they found, oh, here's, here's, the, here's some of the mortar rounds. And they've taken that and then given them to Ukraine. So there isn't a lot in a lot of these warehouses. What Europe will have to do is to do a couple things. One, they got to get more money uh, under contract. They got to get their defense industries moving. There's been a really good EU initiative uh, to invest in ammunition production in 155 millimeter mortar rounds, mobilizing 1 billion from uh, the EU for the first time buying ammunition. That's a great initiative, but that needs to be done at scale. That needs to be done across the board when we're whether we're talking tanks, air defense uh, missiles, which are going to be particularly critical perhaps this winter when Russia is looking to really deplete Ukraine's air defenses. They're going to have to need resupply of missiles. And if the U.S. can't do it, they can't get those systems there in time and don't have the money, then that's going to turn to Europe to really do that. So that's going to mean depleting European supplies further, getting their industries up and running. One of the things I would should just say is the United States diplomatically, and I totally get this, has been very reassuring throughout the last nine, 10 months. Saying there's solid commitment, there's strong bipartisan support. All of that is true, but I don't think we quite level set with people about the kind of political dynamics. Um, and I think this was, I think this was, you know, something that we could see coming. I mean, I wrote about it in March and was worried about it as soon as it was clear that Kevin McCarthy was going to have difficulty controlling his caucus back in January. And we were telling people, the U.S. government, saying, don't worry about it. Like, we're here. America's steadfast. And they wanted that to be true. But what we needed to be telling them, telling Europeans is, my God, you need to get your production lines rolling because we're not sure what's going to happen with the House. And they haven't done that. And now I think it's time for the president to really sound the alarm and get on the horn with Ursula von der Leyen, with other European leaders and say, you got to find the funds, borrow the money and put stuff under contract. And then I think there's a danger though, even with that, that there'll be a Delta, there'll be a gap between when those munitions and other things really start coming off the production lines and what is in stock right now that, that Kiev can use to fire at, at, at the Russians to, to sort of hold them back or to advance themselves. So, uh, this is, this could be a real, real military dilemma for, for Ukraine if the funding dries up. Oh, that's uh, that's really concerning. Any anybody else? We are forgetting the G7, other U.S. allies and partners. Anybody else who could potentially? You know. I should say the one thing that I think there it will still be money and authority for the U.S. to do is actually to buy uh, equipment from other countries to provide to Ukraine. The U.S. has been doing some of that. The U.S. has gone around the world to try to buy up uh, uh, arms. Particularly, we went and tried to buy old Soviet weaponry from various allies and partners that we could provide to Ukraine. So there is, you know, there's, there's room to do stuff and this doesn't, this is not sort of an excuse. The lack of funding is an excuse for the U.S. to just be like, well, there's nothing we can do. There's still a lot that can be done. And in fact, I think it, it kind of requires looking at the security assistance manual, you know, this is big green book and really going through every line and seeing where 
there's maybe daylight in in the authority to to push it. So there's going to be things that the U.S. can do, and you know, an industry has already in the U.S. has already ramped up, and so maybe there's production lines are humming. So actually, some of the timeline delivery lags can be cut down, and you can reprioritize things coming off these production lines. Maybe a country like Saudi Arabia decided they were going to buy something, and and you know what's coming off the production line is for them. Well, you can sometimes reallocate and say, oh, it's going to be another six months until you get your delivery. So there's going to be a lot the U.S. can still do, but this sort of IV drip that we were providing to Ukraine, equipment going directly to the front lines, there could be a real gap if Congress doesn't act. And I think that's where we're really in danger. I mean, this would, I think, be a real geopolitical catastrophe for the United States. Last question I'm going to ask, Max. Uh, when I talk to my Ukrainian colleagues, they often ask me, does the West understand that this is not just our war? It's the war for the liberal international order, the fight for the West as we know it. And much of the problems that you've highlighted seem to suggest to me that seems to be a lack of a sense of urgency still uh, and understanding how important it is for, the, for Ukraine to win. I think there is a, a widespread understanding. And that's why, you know, in a really polarized town, like Washington, D.C., you have widespread majority support for providing aid to Ukraine. In fact, you know, what the Biden administration, what the United States has done over the last two years, well, open to criticism, being slow on certain weapon systems, I think no one criticizes like the amount that has been provided, the speed that has been provided. I mean, on some systems, the speed has been questioned. But, but in general, I mean, U.S. has done sort of a Berlin airlift style aid mission to Ukraine, getting things to Poland, getting them into Ukraine. It has been a really remarkable effort that has not just been supported by the Biden administration, but by uh, supported by Democrats, but by Republicans, too. And I think what we're seeing is just that right now there is an anti-establishment populist wing that, you know, may have just taken power in Slovakia and that rules in Hungary. This is a, a challenge for the House Republicans, and that is leading to a degree of foreign policy chaos because America is having trouble, trouble sort of governing itself. So if you're going to have trouble passing a budget, you're also going to have a trouble passing a supplemental budget for Ukraine. And I think the hope is that this will eventually get resolved, right? We have these fights. Usually the government opens. My fear, though, is that we'll have this fight and... You know, I'm not worried about the government never reopening again. The government will reopen. There'll be funding at some point to open the government. I'm just worried that the Ukraine funding may not be there. And that's, I think, something that really has to concern all supporters of Ukraine and really uh, keep, keep leaders in, in, uh, in Ukraine up at night. The last thing I'd say, maybe say, it's going to make it very difficult for Kiev to, like, to plan this war, not quite knowing what they're going to be expecting come, come December and January. Yes, absolutely. And let's hope the worst can be avoided. Thanks for your clarifications, Max. And of course, thanks again to all listeners for tuning in. Be sure to give us a positive rating and subscribe to our podcast. And please also check our sister podcast, The Europhile, uh, wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you next time. Thank you. You've been listening to Russian Roulette. We hope you enjoyed this episode and tune in again soon. Russian Roulette releases new episodes every two weeks on Thursdays and is available wherever you get your podcasts. So please subscribe and share our episodes online. And be sure to check out all the latest analysis by the Europe, Russia and Eurasia program at csis.org.